Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. My name is Matthew Dawkins, and I am not joined today by my co-hosts, Dixie Cochran and Eddie Webb, because this is a solo venture due to our guest, whose name you will have seen in the title of this episode being based on the wrong side of the world. Uh, it makes it quite awkward for Americans to get on and interview him at a, uh, let's say, convenient time, comfortable time, which leaves it to me in the UK, even further on the other side of the world, to sync up mornings and evenings. So here we are. So I hope you enjoy me because I am the host you are stuck with, but I can guarantee you will enjoy our guests. See how professional I am, Leith. This is, I was made for this kind of job. Uh, I know you will enjoy our guest, Mr. Leith Shields. Hello, Leith. Hello, Matthew. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. Uh, I I feel like we should take this to some kind of uh, chat show, studio-based uh, affair, but then it would be more difficult to get you on, I suppose. Um, well, I think I would like to. I'd like to say that uh, first of all, thank you very much for your your introduction, Matthew. But um, uh, secondly, I think rather than saying we're on the wrong side of the world, I'd say Australia is probably the right side of the world. You know, it's it's a wonderful country to to be in, uh, wonderful side of the world to be in. Um, and you're quite right about time zones. I can manage a convenient time with either my UK counterparts uh, or my American counterparts. But if you try and get all three of us into a uh, conversation at the same time, someone's getting up at 2 a.m. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we all have to disagree on the right side, wrong side of the world. I remember the last time I uh, spoke to you on here, uh, we had a vaguely uh, Australian-British dispute, but not nothing too severe. Hopefully we won't go down that road again. The war is over no, between our two nations. Uh, too many casualties on both sides, and uh, we need to forgive and forget. I think that's, that's the, the moral of the story. That terrible, Absolutely. terrible. But no, it's conflict. a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be talking to you again. Yeah, uh, it is. It's always good to have you on here. And uh, we've got a few projects that we intend to speak about in this episode. But before we get into them, and I know uh, because, again, I'm going to put at least one of them in the title. Uh, before we get onto it, I guess, general housekeeping. How are you doing, Leif? How is life in Australia treating you? Uh, very well at the moment. It's uh, it's winter, in the middle of winter for us, so it's quite cold, whereas I understand in the Northern Hemisphere you're all enjoying the middle of your summer period at the moment. Um, but yeah, no complaints. We're all still, you know, dodging the mighty COVID virus, which continues to uh, create havoc around the world and make difficulties for everyone, but let's not dwell on that. Um, but generally, life is good. I've got plenty of projects to be working on and uh, enough time at the moment to be doing it, which you can't always say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's funny you say it should be summer over here. It's currently raining outside my window, but I have to remember where I am. And so that does actually feel pretty normal. Obviously, uh, yes, right now to very much date this episode and hopefully it won't last too long. There's an unbearable heat wave taking place in certain parts of America. Uh, so hopefully yes. they'll get past that soon. Um, and it's that it's not a symptom of a much wider global issue. But we're not... Actually, you know what? I was going to say, we're not here to talk about things like that. But in a sense, we are. Because we are of... 
Yes, one of the guests. Because we're here to talk about the apocalypse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, it's it's funny that... Uh, well, not funny, but um, I guess strange, uh, a little... It's one of the biggest challenges I've found as a GM, and again, slightly off-piece, but maybe you've got some ideas on this. It's how to handle things like environmental hazards, uh, the uh, oppressive heat, uh, hell, you could even get a bit exotic with it and say acid rain, uh, things like that, Ooh. that uh, to convey them as a meaningful, I guess, threat, an engaging threat in a game. Uh, so for, first question to you, Mr. Shields, is how do you handle environmental hazards in a role-playing game? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a very good question. Um, and I think in some ways I'm very similar to yourself that I, I don't have a, a perfect solution or a one, one true way. I think I tend to make uh, your broader environmental hazards uh, background elements that are sort of oppressively omnipresent, but not necessarily mm. mechanically represented a lot of the time. Uh, unless it's uh, an enduring presence. So, for example, if we're talking about the stifling heat, uh, well, your characters are going to be feeling that stifling heat, but I guess unless um, unless they're out being particularly active in that heat, I'm not going to be uh, applying penalties to them uh, or increasing difficulties because, as we both know, uh, you're playing a role-playing game for fun, and mm. even though... At the moment, it feels like the world is against everyone. Uh, you want a bit of escapism from that, and you don't you don't want to be living through a, a North American heat wave <laughs> and being told by your GM, "Well, you know, you fail every roll because you're really hot," um, or being told you can't go out and uh, it's, you know, engage with whatever spirit, pursue whatever quest because COVID, and you have to wear face masks. Um, you need to be able yeah. to escape from that at least somewhat. It's uh, one of the a couple of the worst games I've ever run have been based around environmental danger. Uh, <laughs> uh, they were at conventions, and the 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 first one I thought it would be really engaging to run a game that was set immediately after a nuclear bomb fell. There's a James Herbert novel called Domain, which is largely about uh, big carnivorous or human-eating rats but it starts with a nuke landing on, or several nukes landing on London and I wanted to play through the initial impact of the nuclear weapon knowing they are airburst weapons mm -hmm. but let's accept impact as the given word and then having to survive in this environment despite the the, the, the fallout and subsequent nuclear winter and so on and it was a game that wasn't involving fallout um, rpg style super mutants and things it was purely environmental and in my head this was going to be a great survival game a game where humans banded together where where people had to get together to overcome the odds but it turned out and i don't know whether it was simply my story or just the uh, the nature of, as you say, it was um, well. This is your mechanical disadvantage for operation operating with radiation burns, and uh, this is what you can't do while you're puking your guts up. Um, <laughs> but it turned out to not be as fun as I imagined, and 
and I did a similar no. thing that was a trek a trek through a jungle with humidity and bugs and swamps and so on. And I got so hyper focused on again that environmental factor that at some point it just became okay. So what's the hazard in this part of the jungle? Let's get through there. Okay, we're up, we're past the swamp now. We're in the quicksand. We're through the quicksand now. We're up in the lake full of leeches. And I suppose in a sense that's like a dungeon crawl. It's Tomb of Horrors like, but in a jungle. Uh, but I think that can also be incredibly dull if you've got the wrong GM or the wrong group. I'll blame the group. It was probably the group. It was the group's fault, definitely. But yeah, I, I hear what you're yeah. saying. I think I've I've definitely had similar experiences, and I I believe it takes. I'm undoubtedly there are GMs out there who can do it well, and I admit I'm obviously not one of them, um, because I find that imposing those kind of conditions constantly, uh, and and I've had similar games, you know, set in hot, humid jungles where. You know, it, it hurts to walk, it's hard to breathe, It's everything's difficult, you're covered in sweat and bugs are attacking you. And they just turn into death spirals, if I can use that term, of mm. failure. Uh, so, you know, you need, to get, you need to get past this latest obstacle and everyone fails. And you're like, okay, so we've, we have to fail forward and try and keep this game going and you meet the next obstacle and everyone fails. And very quickly people start you get that look which every gm dreads and every gm i am sure has has seen every storyteller sorry i'm dipping into a non uh, onyx path terminology but every uh, storyteller has seen that that glazed look on the on the faces of their players as they're just looking going dude we came here for an evening of fun what are you doing to us uh yes yeah it, it's it's very easy to see that with so many games that are not just uh, I suppose now that now that you're describing it like that and I know this is a big tangent from what we intended to talk about but this is kind of the uh, the the, the fair and trade of uh, the onyx pathcast that you um, that even if you have something like a zombie survival a zombie game, you know if you have a repetitive enemy over and over again that works in the same way in theory, uh, there should be interesting ways to position those hazards because all a zombie mm. is in traditional Romero style is a is a hazard that you need to bypass or eliminate. It isn't something that unless it becomes a horde usually or unless you find yourself trapped is going to become a present threat and because of the way mechanics work in RPGs most people know to not waste their bullets unless they're taking a cold shot and because the zombie is slow moving they'll move far enough back so that they can get the aim and just take the zombie out and want it that kind of thing but um yes it's yeah it it, it makes me I think don't... of how there's some video games <laughs> like The Forest. I don't know if you've played The Forest, which is no, a game where uh, you're playing crashes on an island, you wake up, you're on an inhospitable island. It's all about building a cabin, surviving in a hostile environment, and uh, you know making fire. It's, it's purely a survival game, but it's a very fringe interest because the agency is purely down to the player it's it's not driven by a narrative and i suppose quite often that environmental horror or environmental action is the same way you need someone who is truly invested in that kind of survivalist experience 
to get the most out of it. Otherwise, there'll be a bit, mm. you know, twisting in the wind. Yeah, I think as I as I get older and become a wiser GM, I hope um, I really grow to appreciate uh, the style of game that um, that that say Storypath uh, offers these days, where you take a much more cinematic approach to things and your protagonists have that little bit of, of, of PC shielding, a bit of PC aura around them, that they uh, they are the player characters. They get to, uh, in some ways, ignore some of the, the hazards that, that afflict the non-player characters. So to, to build on your example with zombies, you know, we've all seen the zombie movies where the poor secondary background character gets a single scratch and 10 minutes later they're hungering for brains, whereas the PC <laughs> seem to wade through you know, just just hordes of, of gore and somehow, unless it's dramatically appropriate, uh, they don't catch the infection um, until you need to whittle it down to just one one survivor at the end. And I, and I quite appreciate that style these days, um, except, and I will, uh, if I may talk about a non-Onyx Path game for a moment, something I've been yeah, having a lot do. of fun with. Something I've been having a lot of fun with lately is the um, the Alien RPG uh, from Free Legion, uh, because uh, on the cinematic side, you've got two styles of campaign cinematic, which is just you know replicating sort of a movie feel, and then campaign, which is a traditional kind of RPG experience. Uh, and my group has been playing just cinematic lately because it's such a lovely uh, opportunity to let your hair down, sit down for a, for, for a game session, maybe two game sessions, and have a character that you know will die will probably die messily yeah. and is probably going to make some really poor horror movie choices along the way. And uh, that is um, immensely freeing <laughs> as, a, as a role player. Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for the, uh, the attractiveness of one-shots or games designed for one-shots and uh, not just mm. to play once and then put back on your shelf, but to take it off your shelf and play a different kind of one-shot. And uh, the Alien RPG is definitely like that. There is not a single recap I have heard or read of that game that hasn't been engaging and interesting. Just the way that people go through this three to four hour story of Alien as uh, is cinematic, it is like a movie, characters will die, and they find such interesting ways to tell the tale because they have played with a full intention that once this comes to the end of the story, that's it, our characters are done, we have told our tale. And there, there are, of course, lots of uh, role-playing games that are designed like that. One could argue mm. that they came from games uh, more geared towards one-shot. Um yes. And going all the way back to, of course, a very popular game that is still popular now, Call of Cthulhu, uh, while it has a, many a campaign, me, many a mega campaign like uh, Masks of Nile Athotep and Horror on the Orient Express, it is also the quintessential uh, convention game in the UK, at least. It's almost as popular as the sort of Adventurers League stuff that goes on for D&D, that mm -hmm. people will run Call of Cthulhu games and you will sign up with the full knowledge that the likelihood is by the end of that session you will be dead or your sanity points will have reduced to zero. And I I've, I've grown somewhat tired of that playing Call of Cthulhu in that way, but I am attracted to playing other games in that way. So I still haven't picked up Alien, but I am really, I intend to, and I'm really looking forward to a chance to learn it and, and run it. 
so here's to you, Freer Legan. Uh, you you have definitely made something good there. They have, and if you do pick up the game, I'm very happy to run you through a scenario at some point. Ah, oh, thank you very much. Uh, so, yeah. and so uh, we mentioned Apocalypse earlier. Of course, one of the main reasons for having you on here is to speak about Werewolf: The Apocalypse, and. Uh, uh, and, you know, on the same subject of, well, I, ha- I hate to call it complaining, but I'll call it what it is, there's, I have played a substantial amount of werewolf in my role-playing life, and it's interesting that, for me, there's a pretty firm division between werewolf done well and werewolf not done well. I've rarely found a middle ground. This is just, again, my play experience, uh, and I don't mean to sound gatekeeper-y, but I, I have played a lot of werewolf where it is just combat mission combat mission combat mission mm-hmm. and i i think the reason for that is it has a certain attractive quality where compared to vampire let's say uh, and a lot of people have made this point that in vampire the big question is well what do i do and well why should i work with you because I am an inherently selfish creature, and this society does not reward groups ascending, uh, but it does reward a certain amount of selfishness, if we are looking at the Camarilla as an example. But then you have Werewolf, which is entirely pack-oriented, and you have a almost singular enemy, if you exclude the Weaver from the equation, uh, as lots of werewolves would like to, and so a lot of storytellers run it as, so now you're going to raid the Endron refinery. Now you're going to kill these Fomori. Now you're going to um, blow this up. And I find that quite samey. But one thing we've done with Apocalyptic Record, I feel, is show some very distinct, uh, I guess, visions of how a werewolf story can take place, uh, different arcs, different tales you might tell at the tabletop. Mm-hmm. So with that said, uh, perhaps you could explain how the book is laid out and why it lends itself to that kind of storytelling. Yes, so thank you, uh, Matthew. So um, the apocalyptic record, um, uh, for our, our listeners' um, uh, benefit, is kind of the Beckett's Jihad diary for uh, werewolf the apocalypse and it's it's bringing together the end of the uh, werewolf 20th anniversary line um, but where it differs from Beckett's uh, is and you put it very well just there that that the the guru are working together um, but unlike vampire which has its x number of clans 13 you know plus minus whoever's working with each other at any given time the Werewolf Nation is, in my opinion, uh, amazing in terms of the, the the sheer number of tribes, the three different breeds, the different viewpoints it brings, uh, that you don't have any one lawkeeper going around and trying to collect all these these tales and, and compile them for the for the benefit of, of the race. You have, you know, a thousand different lawkeepers all telling their own stories. And one of the other wonderful things about the Guru is that they are an oral history uh, nation. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're thousands upon thousands of, of years old. They're uh, not individuals, obviously, but as a, as a, as a people. Uh, and they've passed down their stories uh, through, 
through stories, through legends. Uh, they've told tales. They've used metaphor. Uh, sometimes they've told it straight. Uh, and then layered on top of that, to make it even more complex and interesting, you have the spirit world with these immortal beings, some of whom were around uh, back when some of the tales that are being told first happened. However, they also have their own, uh, well, you know, they're not, um, they're not infallible. They have their own takes on, on what happened, how they remember it, what, uh, what um, uh, slant uh, or prism they're choosing to see it through, uh, what purpose they're telling the story for. So the apocalyptic record tries to capture that, tries to capture a slice of that. Uh, and to do so, we've, we've broken the, the book up into uh, six chapters, uh, one chapter for each of the auspices, um, and then a final chapter which examines the meta plot across so many different editions, so many different books, and some of the big elements that uh, players could get um, engaged with and use at their table. Uh, so the book kicks off and with the Arun, um, and we look at the Amazon War as the focal aspect there, not just the Amazon War, but, but the legacy of the Amazon War. Um, so we were looking at you know, the, the violence that, that encapsulates the guru, the rage that they all feel, that, that back 30 years ago when, you know, when Werewolf was, was first coming out, 28, 30 years ago, whatever it was exactly, um, that the Amazon was such a big topic and you know, there was so much attention given to, to it in, in print. Um, but 30 years later, that's kind of moved on. We've got other, other apocalypses, other things to, to be worried about, and that doesn't mean it's gone away. But one of the questions we put to our writers, which, which I think they've answered quite well, is, well, what happened? What happened, werewolves? Why, why did you move on? You, know, you clearly didn't win, so what happened? Mm. Um, and I think that's a really good way of challenging those viewpoints and bringing it forward. Um, did you have anything you wanted to throw in there, mate, or did you want me to continue? Uh, no, no, uh, I I completely agree. And it's the one thing that we have repeated several times throughout the book, and it is intentional, is the idea that these are tales of tragedy and triumph. And yes. there will be lots of different narrators using those words or variations of those words. I made sure uh, when I was going through my development past that we were reflecting that uh, routinely because for for every victory, there is a failure. There sometimes there's two failures. And we know, we know as readers, and we often know as players, that the werewolves are destined to lose this war. But, yes. it, but they want to lose it by increments, not wholesale. So every battle that they win is a cause for great joy, celebration, and and reflection. And the Amazon War was a really strong way to open the book, I feel, and we tell that tale in the Arun chapter. I think we may return to it. We touch on it a couple of times in some of the other chapters, but not in as large a way. But we um, we look at the Amazon War uh, not just from the perspective of a pack that was present there, although that 
point of view does come through, uh, but also uh, from some hapless Pentex uh, pe- people that are recruited for one of the many logging in industries in that area. Uh, and mm-hmm. so you're, and this comes through repeatedly uh, that you are getting multiple perspectives of the same. Uh, events that sort of Rashomon style of well is anyone here actually correct or are they just all giving their uh, their view which is of course uh, colored by their own their, their experiences and their views before all of these events happen and of course what happens to them afterwards so, yeah, so that was one of the um, that was one of the, the the directions we gave to our writers uh, in the outline that there are no objective truths in this uh, in this book um, now when I say that of course there are objective truths in the sense that the worm exists the uh, guru exists you know they're objective truths but in terms of the stories the narrators are telling none of them are objectively true you know everything that happened is uh passed on from someone else or the person there is remembering what happened or or they're you know they have their own their own ideas that they want to bring to the front their their own their own shames that they want to to play down a little so so i find that really interesting that um that we're we're presenting all these stories but the readers will will go through them and they, they will see the thread and they will pick up what we're telling um but they will also have space to figure out how they use that in their games. You know, do they use it directly and say that it is more true than not? Or do they say, look, that is something that someone has misremembered and here's how it really happened if I want to deliver that into my game. Um, and I, I yeah. find that really fun. Uh, I so, think the so, uh, for Sorry, my money uh, uh, for my money some of the most interesting work in the book is the perspectives of spirits totems and the essentially uh, incorporeal elements I suppose because mm. uh, from a from the side of wisdom one would say that they know the most about what's going on both in the Umbra and not, uh, because they have been around, in some cases, forever. But what becomes apparent as you read each of the entries that comes from one of these uh, more spiritual elements in the book is how fixated they are on what amounts to their purview, their portfolio, Mm-hmm. What it is that that forms their existence? Why you know why do why does this totem have so much strength? And through that, as you sort of take the journey through a character's narration of an event, and it might be I don't know weasel, let's say, uh, you start to uh, essentially see more and more weaselly uh, perspective as you get through to the end that, oh, okay, so I've just been taken on an excellent story that's told me a tale, but by the end of it, it's this is the view of a creature that is largely elemental, that doesn't have the benefit of, uh, or as much benefit of being able to reflect uh, of introspection, of being able to share these tales with other creatures like it necessarily, and so mm. it's entirely wrapped up in its own very wide world view. Uh, and yeah, I think some of those uh, pieces are wonderfully written. Uh, but uh, do continue uh, on the subject of the <laughs> no book structure. 
Yeah, so uh, moving on from the Arun, we move on to the Galliard chapter, which uh, is looking more at the tribal legends, um, where the Guru succeeded, where they failed, uh, the sins that they um, committed uh, in part of that. It's, it's a reflective bit. And I should point out at this point that listeners would have already figured this out from the fact I've moved from Arun to Galliard. We've deliberately structured the chapters in uh, an order that's different to what you usually see the auspices presented in the books. Uh, we haven't done it alphabetically. Uh, we haven't done it uh, as the moon um, phases progress. Uh, we've started with kind of the most in-your-face full moon um, violent, and then we move our way down into the the, um, the galliards before we step into Theurge's Ragabash and then finish off with, with Philodox. Um, so... The Galliard section I really liked because um, uh, it brings home some of the Australianisms in it. Um, there are some very good uh, sections in there that are examining the um, the fall of the Bunyip and the Guru, the the tales they tell themselves of that time as well, and and introduce some of the possibilities of of the lost Bunyip and and that they're out there somewhere and possibly we could bring them back and introduce that as a bit of a, a, a story hook. Um, for again, whatever value a given table uh, places in that, um, but we're trying to demonstrate that there are things that the guru can learn, and they are, I want to say, creatures of habit in some ways that they keep repeating the mistakes of the past, and as long as they do so, they're going to continue making the mistakes of the past over and over again. Um, and I've said to people before that, you know, the guru are, are very much that that hammer when they see everything as a nail and they need to really get themselves out of that mindset. And this is where, this is the chapter where we start bringing some of that uh, questioning in. Uh, the chapter after that, we move on to, uh, I, I know I generally say Theurge because I read it first, but I think you say Theurge, uh, Matthew. But um, this is where we really start <laughs> looking at the, at the spirit, uh, the spirit side, obviously, they're the, the auspice who deals most with spirits. Um, but they look at some of those, uh, as you say, uh, you, as you just touched on, creatures and stories which have a different perspective than what the guru have. And as I said earlier, you know, the guru are storytellers. They are an oral tradition. Uh, they like to pass on their legends to each other. And the spirits have had no need of that. They're basically mortal beings, you know. If they if they talk to someone, that's with a purpose. If they agree to help, it's with a purpose. If they refuse service, it's you know with a purpose. But it's an alien purpose. It's not necessarily something that we can a hundred percent relate to, even when they're allies. Um, so it is interesting, as you say, and Weasel is a good example um, of how you get a really good story, but it's not necessarily. Um, the, the, the way that we would think that something would happen and, and the way that should happen. So I found that yeah. really, really interesting. Uh, yeah, one of my uh, one of the things that I think is really strong in that Tierge chapter is it, it helps explain how to how to use spirits in your campaign, mm. your chronicle of werewolf. And of course there are other books that do this. Uh, there, is, there are already books on the Umbra and there, there's, there are already books on most of the subjects in this book because this book is a big consolidation uh, or accumulation of, of law. It's all new. It's all new takes on things. But one thing that 
often doesn't get put into print is how do these entities work in practice? Uh, how yes. how do they exist in our world? How might they function? How might they serve? And how might they manipulate? Uh, and by essentially reading through accounts of these kinds of things, storytellers can take that and place it straight in their chronicle as, well, that is how I'm going to have this particular spirit interact, or this is how I'm going to have someone who has been infected with a bane uh, and slowly lost themselves succumb to it and and then see whether the pack is prepared to go through what is ultimately a form of exorcism crossed with surgery to remove that bane and hopefully there's still something uh, living and healthy remaining after that. Um, uh, for, in, a, in a sense, I think that the Tiage chapter, because it goes into such spiritual matters, naturally, given the subject, it's also one of the darkest chapters of the book, mm-hmm. uh, because it deals with, uh, with spiritual corruption, and perhaps more so, uh, I guess, than any other World of Darkness game, you could argue Wraith, but... Even even spectres and shadows in Wraith don't really get into the nitty-gritty of turning someone against their family through possession and eroding their being and making them watch through their own eyes as they lose complete control of, mm. of their, uh, their, their, their functions, their rationality, and become a slave to the worm. That they and they start enjoying it at a certain point, uh, and that's when you become a, a, a terrible for more. And yes. the Tiage chapter goes through these kinds of things, and yeah, I, I really appreciate. I think the authors did a fantastic job, and, and I should say that part of the purpose, our mission statement, to refer to another book <laughs> that you are uh, developing is that we want this book to be functional. People who have heard interviews with me before know that my big, uh, I guess, headline is utility. Things in these books have to be usable. Sentences, paragraphs always have to have plot hooks in. And in this case, we didn't just want it to be for the storyteller. These aren't just things for you to extract and place in your chronicles. These are also for players to take inspiration Because, as Leith says, Garu abide by an oral tradition, they are going to have heard these stories when they were cubs, when they were young, when they were growing up and being being raised by their, their sept elders. And so these are going to be things to aspire to or lessons to avoid. And everyone knows I have no issue with the idea of metagaming. Uh, look at they came from. Uh, but I love a game product such as this that encourages a player to pick up a book and say, if you want your young uh, Philodox to know some things about what it is to be Philodox, flip to that chapter, take some of this mm-hmm. out, ha- carry that with you as a player so that when you start moving into your chronicle, you can say, well, as this werewolf taught us, you know, like the learned preacher, essentially, as mm. as we know from our tribal history, this is not the way we need to act, or this is the sort of thing we do need to do. So uh, I think it's a very usable book. But we're, we're halfway there, 
Leith, what follows the urge? <laughs> after after the urge, well done. Um, we move <laughs> on to Ragabash, uh, which I find uh, a, a fascinating chapter. I always have a soft spot for for the Ragabash uh, because. Um, I think all too often that there is a risk that they can be played as, you know, the, the fish milk of the, of the guru nation. But um, here they're looking at, they're looking at the bullshit that exists within guru culture. And they're the ones who will call it out as bullshit. Mm. If I may be vulgar, Um, you know, they're the ones who, who are doing your monkey wrenching activities. They like to, Get in there and sabotage Pentex. They they have their relationships with her, with with what's going on, but they see some of the rot, uh, some of the the hypocrisy at the core of everything. You know, they're the ones who they're almost like the um, uh, canaries isn't the right uh, term because they're not going to die easily, but they're, they're the the you know the 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 weather vanes who tell you which way the wind's pointing. They they're going to see the changes first and it would do well for other auspices to pay attention to them, to listen to them. But I think, unfortunately, uh, often they are relegated to the, the trickster role and everyone ignores them um, to their peril. Uh, but I really like, we, we look at uh, in this chapter as well, some of the relationships between uh, Guru and the kinfolk um, and that there's layers of nuance there, both good and bad experiences, and, and even the good experiences can be uh, very much a second-class citizen kind of kind of feel. Um, so we do have our uh, our point of view characters who provide their their insights to being a kinfolk and, and how they're treated as well. Um, and then we we move on to the final chapter, which is our Philodox. And in this chapter, we we're looking at refocusing. So you know, we've moved through uh, the darkness. We're coming back out into the light, as you say, Matthew and uh, the Philodox are the ones who are going to bring the balance. They stand at the half moon. They, they're looking into the past. They're looking into the future. They need to bring that crossover between the tradition, the oral stories, the, the what came before, and look at how that can adapt to, to the challenges that are before them now that are coming in the future. And uh, even though a lot of these stories, uh, as we were saying, the, you know, the cubs would have heard them growing up, um, around a campfire or, or from their kinfolk or, or however they were raised. But uh, a lot of these nowadays are also, you know, guru know how to use technology, um, especially the, 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 the homered ones. Um, so a lot of these things are being recorded or they're being put onto internet. They're being sent to other, other packs, other sets as uh, law that you need to adapt to you need to to know more um and the philodox chapter also philodox chapter also poses the question or or introduces the concept of what is an apocalypse um and by that i mean this is when i said this brings us full circle uh, i really like this as well because it introduces the concept that okay it's werewolf the apocalypse the apocalypse is happening yes but a lot of guru look at that and they think, oh, look, if the worm wins, that's the end of everything. But this is, well, you know, apocalypses may have happened in the past. You know, the brainstorm happened and everyone thought the world was ending, but then there was something after. Um, there's been numerous events that people could have said were apocalypses and then something happens after. So this is trying to bring the guru nation to say, yeah, 
you're probably going to lose and an apocalypse is coming and it might be the big one which kind of ends in inverted commas everything but is there light at the end of that tunnel is there something after it and do you need to be prepared for that as well and it, it brings us back to some of that hope that was introduced in the comic in the beginning of uh, the Werewolf 20th and uh, a Anniversary edition, where the prophecy of the phoenix had a new um, a new prophecy, um, which was the guru coming together and having some hope of the possibility of success, the possibility of victory, uh, and the phylodox are the ones here to to bring it out and to hopefully be able to engage the rest of the nation and say, hey, we have a chance here. You know, it, it might be the it might be the um, the Avengers Infinity War Endgame one in 14 million chance, but there is a chance. So is it worth fighting for? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, excellently put. And we, we close out the book with the meta plot chapter, which was a, an interesting one for the author to tackle uh, because werewolf's meta plot isn't, uh, isn't, developed as densely as thickly i suppose as vampires and part of the reason for that in my view is an awful lot of the meta plot in vampire came through in its big multi-part chronicles like giovanni chronicles transylvania chronicles and that wasn't as much of a thing in apocalypse so Players and storytellers were left to sort of form the world based on the disparate elements. And our Metaplot chapter helps to join a lot of that, sync a lot of it up, but also, of course, provide the utility so that you can start incorporating that Metaplot into your game if you wish. Uh, and you don't have to invest fully in it. You don't have to have taken this thing from early 90s through to 2021 and say, okay, well, this is the history in my game. You can take an element from it. You can say, well, I really like this, so let's have this event that took place in New York be a central uh, hub for for my story that I also want to set in New York, and I can ignore the rest. So it's a nice one-stop shop. It also uh, points you to each source book that references mm. these things as much as we've been able to do. Obviously, there's a lot of Werewolf the Apocalypse source books out there. Uh, so uh, we've compiled a bit of a bibliography. Uh, so if you want to read more on a certain subject, there's where you go. And that's something we weren't able to do with Beckett's Jihad Diary. So, yeah, uh, I, I'm really happy with it. Uh, I know you're really happy with it, Leif. Oh, very and... much so. I'm, I'm excited to get this out to the fans. Yeah, uh, we'll be doing a crowdfunding campaign for uh, Apocalyptic Record in a couple of months, I imagine, as of time of recording. Uh, so, yeah, keep your eyes open for that. Keep checking the onyxpath.com and we will get there. And one last thing on the subject of Werewolf is, uh, while I think all of our authors did absolutely fantastic work and it's wrong to choose favourites, nevertheless, I am going to say it was my absolute pleasure to be able to have both Bill Bridges and Ethan Skemp mm -hmm. working yes. on the capstone to Were uh, Werewolf 20. 
because obviously Bill is the original Werewolf of the Apocalypse developer. Ethan is the Werewolf uh, the Apocalypse revised developer. And uh, I've had uh, both Leith and I have had the opportunity to work with Ethan before on Forsaken, um, but on Shun by the Moon. Um, but I've never been able to work with all three. Uh, well, all, yeah, well, Leith, uh, there you go, Leith, you are the you're now twentieth anniversary guy, um, <laughs> <laughs> and and Ethan and Bill. Uh, so it is. It's been an absolute pleasure to do that. But all credit to all of the authors who did a sterling job with this book. Very happy with it. Oh yes, I think everyone brought their A game. But but you say you say it so well, Matthew. That uh, I was very excited to get to work with both Ethan and Bill. Um, I didn't actually think that was uh, ever going to happen. That I get both of them. Uh, on a book um, and it was wonderful that they were able to, to come along and just hearing their or reading their authorial voices coming through and their their deep understanding of, of the werewolf law and the kinds of uh, stories they were trying to tell that they were bringing uh, bringing back for us um, that they were pleasures to read yeah no one no one writes a lupus werewolf like Ethan uh, honestly, the oh. uh, uh, and you will have to forgive. I can't remember which chapter it's in, but he writes essentially. It's not the entire section, but there's a lot of it that is conveyed purely through sounds, sniffing, you know, odors, mm-hmm. hair bristling, and it's just so fantastic and such a fantastic guide for someone who wants to play a lupus werewolf, which I know a lot of players have difficulty doing because oh lupus that means you're stupid and incompetent unable to function in uh homid society but this is a really rich uh piece of writing uh so oh, yes. and i think anyone uh, um if, if i may quickly jump in there matthew anyone yeah who, please um or basically anyone who wants to play werewolf um either Apocalypse or Forsaken would do well to read, and I believe it's in the Galliard chapter, but I could be wrong, uh, misremembering on that, uh, but read Ethan's descriptions of of how he imparts uh, scent memories and, you know, points out that, that spoken language is just such a limited, clumsy form of communication for the guru. And <laughs> it, it was just wonderfully evocative to read and really immersive, and I think any... Any storyteller should also read that. Any player should read that and go, okay, let me make some notes and how can I get my characters to explain some of the things that they're seeing in those ways? Yeah. So we're going to move on from Werewolf now. Uh, as sure. always, we, we talk and talk. Uh, but let's talk a little about the Trinity Continuum because uh, would I be right in saying this is your next love next to where the two Werewolf games? Uh, very much so. Uh, I am absolutely smitten with the Trinity Continuum. Uh, going back to what I was saying earlier, I love the way the the system is set up to have your protagonists be big damn action heroes who uh, can accomplish you know, the insane, the, the walk through hails of bullets with barely a scratch can disarm bombs with seconds to spare and wonderfully illuminated digital clocks telling them just how long they have to go. Like it, it ticks all the boxes <laughs> I'm looking for 
these days um, uh, with a particular love for the Eon uh, aspect of, of the continuum, although I, I have no ill will against any part of, of the continuum. I love, love all the books, um, but Eon was the one that got me into the Trinity continuum and I just have such passion for it and, and was lucky enough to have developed a few projects for, for that, um, uh, including um, what will probably be the next couple of games to come out after, well, the next couple of books, sorry, to come out after um, uh, Under Alien Skies, which is released this coming Wednesday at the time of recording. Um, we have mission statements coming out uh, in due course and then followed by uh, Prometheus Unbound. And I'm very excited for both of those products. Uh, anyone who watched the um, the Onyx uh, Path Con recently would have seen a little bit of um, uh, a preview from, from John Sneed and Chris Allen on those books. Uh, mission Statements was one that I developed myself and I'm very excited for it. It's the organization's book for Aeon. Uh, it examines sort of the big organizations of the setting. Uh, so we have meta corporations, uh, including your giants like Orgotech. Uh, you have media, um, massive media conglomerations like uh, OBC, uh, like Sudamerica Media. Uh, we look at our antagonist groups. Uh, we've got zany terrorist threats. We've got crazy engineering projects and the ways they could <laughs> prove to be a threat to, to everyone we've got. Th there is something that is uh, available for any players in this book. I think I had to do a, a, a quick uh, head count for the Trinity Discord the other day and I think we have, um, off the top of my head, it's something like 15 new organizations there's 30 plus new paths for players to to take for their characters there's new technology uh, for story guides there's rules on how to run organizations as characters so um, you know narrative always takes precedence but if you're uh, wanting to run in your organization as uh, you know some numbers to get a sense of just how much of a response they can muster when the players break into one of the you know, officers, here's some rules on, on how you can do it and how that, uh, how much that costs the organization, what, what else they can do to, to make the, the characters lives miserable. And I think, uh, readers are going to have a lot of fun with that book. Uh, I've got a question for you actually regarding organizations, uh, and it's something story path mechanic related, I suppose, uh, in yes. that, uh, in, uh, in across the various story path games, uh, you typically have three paths that form your character, some kind of origin path, some kind of central archetype or role path. Role. And yes. then you have, yeah, uh, then you have uh, organizational society or ambition path there. Now, in my uh, experience playing Trinity, most people, if you're in a group, will take the same society or organization or ambition, that third uh, part of the path, because you all want to be able to function together. Uh, you all want mm -hmm. to be following the same agenda. Uh, how do you run stories where you have characters from with different uh, societies to their name? Uh, I'm interested. I'm interested to know this because I I like to see variety with characters, but I also don't want to have to shoehorn 
in a reason for why these characters might function together despite working for different organizations. So how, how might you do that? Uh, well, there's there's a few ways you can do it. Um, one of the wonderful central conceits that the Trinity Continuum games have is the Aeon Society or the Aeon Trinity or the Aeon Foundation or whatever guys it is going under in any time period. Um, but that organization almost always serves as a central point that uh, works to bring together different um, different groups to work together for the good of humanity and one of the things I like about the Trinity Continuum is how we are giving that that message of hope that it's not uh, like a, a world of darkness which is wonderful to play in but sometimes you do want a bit of a, a lighter thing where, where humanity is looking to, to better itself um, so Aeon sits there and it tries to bring together especially in say the 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 Aeon sci-fi sections of the universe you've got the the Aeon Trinity working as a broker and a peacemaker between all the different Psy orders, helping to bring them together. They've got their own relationships, but when those relationships have a little bit of friction, the Aeon Society is there to help them help them through uh, with, with UN, United Nations backing. Um, yeah. the, other, the other way of doing it is just to figure out what those relationships are between your main organizations. I mean, living in the real world, we have organizations which offer secondments you have internships you have partnerships you know people want to learn from from different opportunities and there are a lot of groups out there which will allow them to to do so and so i play up those aspects uh, as much as possible and i try not to limit characters uh unless it's a, a particular story point that i'm going for you know if i want to run a story where i say you all work for orgotech let's make that happen well that's the story but Otherwise, if I'm saying, let's just play a game of Eon, I'll let pay people play from characters from whatever organization they want. And as the story guide, I will just make it work. And it could be that they are, you know, seconded to Aeon. They could be conscripted into a quasi-military kind of response going to another planet. They could be all part of the same uh, Leviathan jump ship, which is just exploring the universe or the mm. galaxy and everyone wants a piece of that pie so every organization is willing to to put aside some of their differences to make sure they have people on board that ship who are going to be among the first to to find whatever it is they find so there's just a wealth of ways we can answer that question um and if if any of our listeners uh, are stuck for ideas feel free to hit me up on, on discord or on the on the forums and i'll, I'll rattle off 10 ideas um, for the <laughs> games which which may help them yeah i think uh and uh, speaking of uh journeying through the galaxy uh do keep your eyes open for under alien skies as letha said it's coming out very very soon in fact as of time of release it may have uh, come out and uh, I was very pleased to have edited that book. It was great fun. And that is always... It's a rare pleasure for me because, of course, I see so many manuscripts pass by. Uh, it can be quite easy to fall into the trap of, okay, well, this is a piece of work. I need to work on it. But Under Alien Skies was just great fun to read as well as edit. And so I think that sort of spacefaring in the world of Aeon is, is looking like it's going to be a lot of fun and it's something that will... Uh, yeah, I'm certainly going to be exploring a great deal of as a story guide. Uh, but oh, there's also Prometheus Unbound, 
Prometheus Unbound, and this is the this is the book that I'm sure every uh, Eon fan out there is just clamoring and saying, "Let's get that book! Let's get that book!" Because this is where we delve into the Psi orders themselves. So we have eight chapters. Each chapter, oh, sorry, we have more than eight chapters, but we have a chapter focused <laughs> on each Psi order, and every chapter looks at their philosophy, looks at how they approach their work, looks at the the, the benefits they bring, um, offers new opportunities, new paths for characters to to go. And so this is also part of your question, uh, Matthew, of, you know, if everyone plays a character from the same organisation, we're offering paths which can at least give variety of the different types of people who work for a given organisation. Um, it looks at what they're trying to achieve. It looks at how they're working together at it, it, Prometheus Unbound goes into some of the, the details around um, how the proxies work together um, and some of the challenges they have with that and whether that affects the the troops on the ground, um, if I can put it that way. Uh, so we go through all eight Psy orders. We have a chapter on technology, uh, which is um, looking at gadgets and gizmos that each Psy order uses, um, not necessarily unique or only used by that Psy order, although some of them are very much unique gadgets, um, but things that, you know, you're going to use to give flavor to a, to a given Psy order. And if, if characters come up against, say, antagonists from another Psy order, giving them some of this equipment will also uh, intrigue your players and say, well, what, what was that? What's going on here? Uh, and we also have a chapter on Psy powers themselves. So this is uh, something that I've wanted to do ever since we we got Aeon out into uh, the hands of fans. There was a lot of material around uh, just more flexible use of powers and ways that people can can shape their powers to be what they want beyond just the, the standard mode progression. Um, ideas that I had to kind of leave on the cutting room floor uh, several years ago for, for word count and space, obviously. Uh, and this was the opportunity to, to, to bring some of those back and re-examine them um, under the, the light of everything we've learned since those first two story path games came out or those, those first two, sorry, Trinity Continuum story path games came out uh, and see how can we give that flexibility, make sure it's a, a wonderfully tight piece of, of, of system generation um, and you know, unleash that on the fans and give them even more flexibility to their to their scions who are exploring the galaxy and and righting wrongs and expanding humanity. Well, I do like the idea of unleashing so, books on fans and uh, <laughs> seeing how they cope. Uh, but it, all of this sounds sounds wonderful to me, and I'm sure it does to the listeners because yeah, any any book that contains options uh, that assists both story guides and players is a good book in my view. Uh, as long as it has something new for me to play with, I am I'm an interested customer. So I'm sure I'm not the only person that feels that way. And uh, I know I know that Mission Statements is a pretty big book, and I don't know what the size of Prometheus Unbound is, but by the sounds of it, there's uh, quite a lot of content in there. So, uh, yeah, that's, that is wonderful. Uh, well, one of the things, now, where, one of the, the design aims, sorry, Matthew, if I can just throw this one last thought in, because obviously yeah, I'm yeah. excited by all these books, um, and now I'm gushing. Um, one of the things 
that we wanted to make sure happened in in all of these Aeon books is that players or story guides, readers will look at it and go, oh, I want to play that. And then they'll turn the next page and they'll be like, oh, I want to play that. And, you know, they'll do that, you know, just about every page. And in some ways we almost want to leave them with a, with a slight sense of frustration that all the options are good options and they want to play everything all at once. And they, they, they have yeah. to choose and they have to go, okay, I'm just going to play this one this time. But, oh, I've got my next five character ideas already lined up. So so if I can get get people to be thinking along those lines, then I think I've done my job as a, as a developer and as a writer. Most definitely. Now, we, we have to wrap up, but something you mentioned before we started recording and to take us back to Werewolf briefly is mm-hmm. uh, both of our both of our journeys with Onyx Path started with Werewolf, didn't they? They did indeed. You, uh, you, were, yeah. you came on on Book of the Worm 20th Anniversary Edition, if I recall correctly, yeah. and I, I came along with uh, Stu Wilson brought me on to Changing Breeds 20th Anniversary Edition. So yes, both of our journeys began very very much almost the same time. And, uh, and we're now bringing that journey, uh, not, not as freelancers or as, as writers. <laughs> well, you werewolf, 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 <laughs> werewolf, I hope, hope so. I hope I haven't said anything that gets me fired, but that, uh, that werewolf 20th anniversary, um, uh, journey is now coming to a close. And, and I think we are leaving this line in a really good place. Like it's always, bittersweet when any line comes to the end of its run but i think the apocalyptic record is a great place for us to leave it to it brings it all back together it gives players so many options it gives a wonderful book to just read and enjoy as well if that's what you want to to just do with it if you're not even looking to run a game with it you're going to have a a fantastic read Uh, but if you do want to run games with it it is packed full of of things for for you to make that happen and uh, I would just say, as an addendum, that is unless we decide to do any stretch goals for Apocalyptic Record, in which case it's a capstone with a couple of bits on the oh, side. <laughs> stretch goals. I wasn't even thinking stretch goals. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah. indeed. More things to write. That's great. Yeah. So go out. All right. People, well, when, it, when it does get released, back it. Give us some stretch goals. Yeah, we we always want the work. And we want to put new books in your hands. So... Thank you very much, Leaf, for once again coming onto the Onyx Pathcast. Never enough time, and there's Thank always plenty to me. talk about. And uh, with that said, if people want to find Eddie Webb online, they can go on pugsteady.com. And if they want to find Dixie Cochran online, they can go on dixiecochran.com or look up Dixie Cyanide on Twitter. Uh, they can find me on matthewdawkins.com or DawkinsMP on Twitter. And Leaf, if people want to find you online, where would they go? Uh, if you want to find me on Twitter, I am at JustLeath, J-U-S-T-L-E-A-T-H. Perfect. And you can find all of us on the Onyx Path Discord. Please engage with us there. That is why we are there. Ask us about the games. Give us your ideas. And we will, you know, we always love to provide feedback to people. That is why the community exists. And, of course, always check out theonyxpath.com for our upcoming releases. We release something new every single week. And we're the only company, as far as I know, in this industry that does that. And with that said, many worlds, one pathcast.